Before we begin today's episode, I want to tell you about a new TV show on CBC News Network that I think you'll like. Canada Tonight with Janella Massa brings you the stories that matter from big cities, small towns, and everything in between. On this show, as you know, we take you beyond the headlines, and that is what you will get on Canada Tonight with Janella Massa. You can watch this show at 8 p.m. weeknights on CBC News Network, and you can stay tuned later in this episode when I sit down with Janella herself to learn more about her new show. We've all learned a lot about viral transmission, about health and safety protocols, about medical vulnerabilities, and all sorts of other depressing topics over the past year. And far too many of us have learned about those things in the hardest possible way. We are also hearing many disturbing stories from many other long-term care facilities across the country. When you look at the number of COVID-19 deaths in this country, nearly half are the result of seniors who were in some type of care facility who died uh, because of the disease. One of the great tragedies of the first wave of COVID-19 in Canada is how unprepared we were to protect the people who were at the greatest risk from the disease our elderly loved ones living in long-term care facilities. We simply weren't ready. We didn't know. Our governments didn't adapt quickly enough or enforce protocols strictly enough or get additional help to workers who were barely keeping it together. But we learned from that failure as we have from so many failures. And when the second wave began to crest as fall turned to winter, provinces across Canada we're ready and prepared to defend our most vulnerable, especially in Ontario. No, I'm sorry. I'm actually being told that Ontario has let the exact same thing happen all over again. And that long-term care facilities are experiencing another, more deadly wave of COVID-19. So to put it bluntly, what the hell happened in Ontario? Why were so few of the lessons taught by the first wave implemented in the second? Why are we still struggling to protect the people we know are at the most risk? And what could we have done to avoid this happening again? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Cynthia Mulligan is the Queen's Park reporter for City News. She's also our reporter at Queen's Park. Hello, Cynthia. Hello, Jordan. Before we get to what's going on right now, again, um, let's just start with the spring, because you also covered that. What happened to long-term care facilities uh, at the start of this? Well, despite what we saw happening in Europe uh, and the knowledge that long-term care residents would be incredibly vulnerable. They were hit so very hard in the first wave, and it was devastating to watch. Uh, we know that uh, many, many died. Um, in the first wave, we lost 1,800 long-term care residents. Modeling shows in the second wave, we will lose 2,600. So for many, the question is, why didn't we learn anything from the first wave? And also during the first wave, 
family members were not allowed to go into the residences. They were desperate for communication. Those who were able to communicate with their loved ones found that they were declining rapidly. And then we had that devastating report from the Canadian Armed Forces that went in to assist in some long-term care homes, not only in Ontario, but Quebec as well. And they detailed absolute pictures of horror, um, residents being force-fed, uh, not cared for properly, um, moaning and begging for help for hours on end before anybody could go in. But now during the second wave, Jordan, family members are allowed to go in, in certain instances, if they're essential caregivers in some homes out of the, the so-called hot zones. And they're seeing firsthand what the military witnessed in the first wave. And they're they're anguished and, and what they describe is horrifying and very similar to what the Canadian military found. So it does beg the question, how come we haven't fixed this for the second wave? How is this still happening today in this province? Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the report. That was going to be my second question. It's not like we don't know uh, where this was screwed up the first time and how bad it got, right? So like, what, what could we have done? What could we have learned but clearly didn't? Well, in the first wave, the government was trying to save hospitals. It cleared them out to 64% capacity. And it almost seemed like long-term care homes were completely forgotten. Uh, they weren't provided proper PPE right out of the gate. It took a very long time before the chief medical officer of health determined that staff members should not work in more than one home because they'll carry spread carry COVID from home to home, even though we knew that from SARS. A report from SARS, what, 17 years ago, concluded that staff need to stay in one uh, workplace. Otherwise, in this kind of a situation, it will spread like wildfire because of staff unwittingly spreading, spreading COVID. And yet it took a very long time. It was weeks for Ontario to only to mandate that staff could only work in one home, weeks behind BC, by the way. And if you look at it in the first wave, Ontario has some three times more residents, 78,000 residents in long-term care. That's three times more than BC. And yet we had many times more deaths because BC locked it down faster. Now in the second wave, we know what best practices are. We know that paid sick days, for example, everybody's calling for that, including some mayors, John Tory, Patrick Brown, Bonnie Crombie. And yet that's not being offered. And you have to remember, these are people, long-term care workers don't make a lot of money. They're being reduced to working in one long-term care home. So they're making even less money and they can't afford to stay home. They just can't. And if the choice is between putting food on the table, what are they supposed to do? So paid sick days is one, one critical area. Rapid testing. There needs to be rapid testing in long-term care homes and training and hiring. If you compare Ontario and Quebec, their situations were very similar after the first wave. In the summer, in June, Quebec announced it was training and hiring 10,000 PSWs. Ontario waited until September 21st to announce a recruitment. Months later, there was such a difference in how they responded. Quebec was far more aggressive and they trained about 10,000 
by or their goal was 10,000. By September, they had 5,000 additional workers in place with a salary, a pension, and benefits. So tell me how this happens, um, that we know what we should do and and we haven't done it. And this is one of those places, because I know it's your job to cover uh, this government, Cynthia, but um, I don't want to just put all the blame on them necessarily, but it, I'm trying to figure out how we ended up here because it seems so senseless to me. So maybe I'm just asking dumb questions because I'm frustrated. Well, I don't think they're dumb questions. And I think everybody are, is... is Everyone is asking those very same questions. This government, the minister in particular, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, is under intense scrutiny and under intense criticism for not being proactive when it comes to long-term care. It always seems like they're reacting. And listen, the spread is in the community. So it's really hard when it's in the community to keep it out of the homes. You have staff coming in and out. And you have family members who are deemed essential caregivers going in and out, even though they have to get tested once a week. Uh, But just because you've been tested in that moment doesn't mean you didn't go to the grocery store or get on transit and, and get it the next, you know, by the time you go in the next time. It's very, very hard to keep it out. But rapid testing would be one way to do so. And we know there are best practices in other provinces. For example, Quebec got the staffing right. And they were in a very similar situation to Ontario. BC has done a really good job. They've been focusing on the hospitality sector to hire more people. So out of work restaurant staff to bring them in. And maybe they're not the primary caregivers, but they're there to offer the support. You know who did a really good job, though, is New Brunswick. New Brunswick has set up a rapid response SWAT team for outbreaks. So immediately they will descend on the home that's in crisis, bring in staff, infection control, PPE, tests, and they will live there until it gets under control. Now I've done a number of stories recently on Sunnycrest. It is a small long-term care home in Whitby. And just before Christmas, all but one of its residents, all but one came down with COVID. So what happens right away when that goes down? Well, here's what didn't happen. 57 57 staff members also came down with COVID. So there was a long, I got my hands on a long-term care report. A long-term care inspector went into the home and found horrific conditions that were directly leading to resident harm. It found a lack of proper use of PPE, a lack of screening at the door. It found residents were not being fed or given medication on time. Sometimes they had to wait hours longer than they should for critical food and medicine. Their wounds were not being treated. It took a week, a week, Jordan, after that long-term care inspector went in and saw all of this, It was another week before the Red Cross moved in. Why did that happen? Do we know? I have tried to get answers from the government. What they tell me is that within that week, there were many meetings. Lake Ridge uh, moved in to try and help with infection control. But, you know, I think that there is um, a misinterpretation. When when the government says a hospital has teamed up with a long-term care home and that they are in the home. What I'm hearing is that doesn't mean it's doctors and nurses in the home caring for patients directly. 
And, and what I have heard from multiple people in the industry, as well as family members who were there at Sunnycrest while this was going on, they were doing paperwork. They were in offices. It's more management looking at how to do control infection measures, but they're not actually doing hands-on care of residents. And remember, Sunnycrest had less than 50% of staff working because they were sick. So it still took a week before you had the Red Cross in there offering assistance. Don't forget though too, hospitals are under strain. So they don't have a lot of spare staff to send over to long-term care. Hey, The Big Story will be right back, but I wanted to take a moment to introduce you, as I promised in the intro, to Janella Massa, the new host of Canada Tonight on the CBC News Network. Hi, Janella. Hi, so happy to be here. Why don't you start, because we have a lot of reporters on this show, a lot of people in the news. Tell me what makes Canada Tonight different from a more traditional news hour in the evening. Well, it really is a conversation with Canadians. We want to go beyond the headlines of the big stories of the day, but we also want to talk about some of the stories that maybe don't get as much attention. And we want to hear from people uh, who don't always get a voice. Can you give me a sense of the perspectives that you'll bring to broadcasting and storytelling? Because you do bring a unique perspective. I mean, I do. A lot of the headlines are, I'm the first hijab-wearing woman to anchor a national primetime show. But the reality is I bring a lot of different identities to the program. I'm Afro-Latina. I'm born to Spanish-speaking parents. I'm the child of immigrants, of a single mother. I grew up in a big city. You know, all of those things shape my experience and how I see the world. And I, and I want to bring all of that to the show. Tune in to Canada Tonight with Janella Massa, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on CBC News Network, and stay tuned to the end to hear Janella tell you a little bit more about what you can expect to see on this show. You talk to family members of Sunnycrest residents. How do they even cope with that? Like, it must be terrifying and, and make them so angry. They're devastated. One of the toughest interviews I've ever done was last week and I spoke to a woman named Bev Kelly along with uh, close to 10, 12 other family members. We were all on a joint Zoom call and they all wanted to talk about the loved ones that they had lost. Bev Kelly went to the home to see her 100-year-old mother who up until then was very healthy, very vibrant and doing really well. And she describes, well, she called it a war zone. And she, she describes walking down the hall to her mother's room and she hears moaning and realized that it was her own mother. And she said when she got in there, her mother was barely conscious. The smell of urine was horrifying. There was broken glass at her bed. A picture had broken. And she didn't look cared for, nor did the other resident in her room. And then there's a bathroom that adjoins to another room and she said the woman in that room was half fallen out of bed and there was feces all over the floor. It was such a bad scene, Bev fled. She fled and ran to her car and wept. And then a short time later, they called her and said her mother was, was failing and she actually went back in and stayed with her mother until she died. It was a devastating account. This time though, we are hearing accounts firsthand from family members. In the first wave, they were not allowed to go in. Right. Now, some are. But even the Long-Term Care Commission 
did an interview with the military and actually found, the, the, they were told, the Long-Term Care Commission was told when the military went in during the first wave, they knew they had to protect the mental well-being of soldiers, trained soldiers, because they were going to get PTSD from what they saw. What does the government say when you ask them about stories like the one you just told me? Very little. I usually get a canned uh, statement that says very little other than offering condolences to families. And that, you know, the key is for people to stay home. Is anything changing as we realize that uh, we've now bungled the second wave exactly uh, the way we did the first? You know, since since you've been reporting, since these stories have been out there, I mean, you've been talking to families of residents, but there have also been, um, you know, a number of viral posts on social media of, of family members uh, showing pictures uh, of horrible and substantial meals or describing conditions like the ones you describe and I have to assume that something's being done to get on top of this. Well, we know that the Red Cross has been called into 12 homes. Currently, the last I checked, um, they are in six long-term care homes. And we know that, for example, there's one in Barrie where it has just swept through the home as well. And they are currently investigating to see if the UK variant is in that home because it has spread so fast. I, I honestly, Jordan, it, it it doesn't feel like anything has changed. There are there are many calls. Uh, the NDP, for example, is calling for the government to to call in the military. The Ford government is not doing so. They say that the Red Cross is sufficient at this time, um, but many feel that not enough is being done. If it's gone this far, is there any way out of this other than? get the vaccines in there as soon as possible? Like, or are we too far down the contagion road to try to stop it that way? And we just need to vaccinate. And that's the only hope now. Well, it feels like we are unless we suddenly miraculously started rapid testing every single person who went into a long-term care home. And there's no plans to do that. We are not doing that. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if there are enough rapid tests to do that. Why is a really good question. Why don't we have rapid testing? in every long-term care home. Can I read you an obit? Yeah, sure. This is a woman named Cindy Samolsky. I did many, many interviews with her and she was doing her best to save her mother who was in a long-term care home. Her mother, Dorothy Ramsden was 99 years old and was blind. And Cindy was horrified because she noticed the mental decline of her mother because she was alone in her room all day long for the last 10 months. Her mother just came down with COVID and and passed. And this is her obit. She died in the hospital cruelly without any family by her side. Sorry, Ma, we tried our best to save you. Do you think, Cynthia, that anything changes in terms of our overall approach to long-term care? I know that vaccines are now picking up and, you know, hopefully... um, Hopefully they get in all our long-term care facilities as quickly as possible to save as many people as possible. But like this has revealed some pretty huge systemic problems. It has. Do you know some doctors are calling this senicide? Huh. So here's what advocates say we need. A national long-term care strategy with a national bar for how tre- seniors in long-term care should be treated. There isn't one. 
There is no national level of care. There needs to be. Some are calling for long-term care to be within um, the Ontario health system. That's another possibility. Uh, but we need, we need to really examine how we are treating our seniors in this country. And my fear is that when this abates, because honestly, Jordan, this, isn't, this, is, this has been an issue for decades. Activists, I've gone so many stories over my career about the lack of proper care in long-term care home. This is not new. It's just the pandemic has brought it to the forefront and nobody could look away, especially when the armed forces revealed what was happening. My huge fear is though, when the pandemic's over and everybody's trying to rebuild the economy and maybe you have shifts and changes within government, that it just quietly goes away again. And that would be a disaster because all these people would have died for nothing. There's nothing else to say really, except uh, we blew it, blew the whole thing. We blew it. We did. You know, I have to say, first of all, the families don't blame the PSWs. They do not blame the staff. They blame the lack of training and the lack of support the staff were given. But I've heard, I've, I haven't heard anybody blame the staff. All I've heard them say is how much love and care that they have given their families and how hard they were working and how hard they worked and overworked they were even before the pandemic struck. And the other thing I will say is, is the family members know that their loved ones were nearing the end of their lives. They know that. They just didn't want them to die like this, alone, in their own feces or urine, improperly cared for, and lonely, so very lonely. That's not how they wanted them to die. And that's what devastates them. And the fact that in most cases, they couldn't be there and hold their hands. Cynthia, thank you for talking to us about this. I know, uh, I know it's one of the hardest stories you've had to cover. It's been rough, I must say. Thanks again. Good to talk to you, Jordan, as always. Cynthia Mulligan of City News. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Email us, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, we are in your podcast player, whichever one you prefer, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourself. Check on your loved ones. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Thank you for staying with us until the end to hear more from my conversation with Janella Massa, the new host of the CBC News Network program Canada Tonight. When you mentioned that you want this newscast to focus more on individual Canadians and personal stories, how do you go about finding them? I mean, a big part of it is being tapped into the community, and I'm pretty present on social media. Uh, sometimes uh, there is an abundance of stories coming into my inbox. I don't have to search very far. And so it's about being connected to the communities around you, not just me, but the people on my team, and listening, listening to Canadians, hearing what their stories are, hearing what their concerns are, and, you know, asking questions.
And that was Janella Massa. You can tune in to find her new show, Canada Tonight on CBC News Network, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern. I hope you check it out.